Father, again, we, we're so thankful to be here, to be able to spend this time together as, as men, to discuss the great, the great calling, Lord, and the great privilege that it is to be a teacher of your word. God, you're the only perfect one here. Holy Spirit, you're the only one who can truly teach here. And we ask again for your gracious ministry amongst us. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I want to pick up from where we left off in Galatians chapter 6, verse 6 in that last session. Um, that's that verse that says, let the catechized share in all good things. And that's talking about finances, share in all good things with the catechist. And commenting on that verse, Tim Keller, this is from the reading that I asked you guys to do before you came here. Um, t- Tim Keller says this. So this will be familiar to all of you. Um, He says, in other words, Paul is talking about a body of Christian doctrine, a catechism, that was taught to them by an instructor. Hear the word catechizer. Uh, And Tim Keller, if you read that thing, you'll know that he speaks quite freely about his belief in catechisms. And in fact, if you've got his book, uh, Tom, I gave it to me as a gift a couple of years back, called Center Church, like a big red hardcover book. Um, He speaks, there's a whole section in there on on the use of catechisms. So uh, Keller says this, if we re-engage in this biblical practice in our churches, we will find again God's word dwelling in us richly. Because the practice of catechesis takes truth deep into our hearts. So we find ourselves thinking in biblical categories as soon as we can reason. What's he talking about there? He's talking about teaching catechisms to children. That if we learn a catechism as a child, we have biblical ways of thinking, paths of logic that are laid in us before we can even reason properly. In um, 1986, John Piper uh, wrote and introduced a new catechism for uh, Bethlehem Baptist. And in his introduction to that catechism that was then released to the church, he, he speaks about those verses of Scripture that I was referring to earlier that speak of this, this body of doctrine that was delivered to, to the churches, this pattern of sound teaching. And uh, speaking about those verses, Piper says this, So it appears that there was a body of authoritative instruction and even a way of teaching it in the early church. The aim of a catechism is not to be exhaustive, but to give a solid base from which to then keep growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He then says to his church, his church, make this catechism part of your family routine or just use it for yourself. And so what is a catechism? What's it designed to do? Unlike the Bible college that I run, a catechism is designed to lay a theological base in the lives of Christians. And then, of course, the whole ministry of the church is then to build upon that base over the next 40 or 50 years in which someone should be a member of a local church. But my fear is that in many churches within the charismatic non-denominational big world out there, that many people, both children and adults, never 
get this theological base systematically laid in their lives. That's my fear. So much of our, edu- our theological education is haphazard. And, and catechesis is the antithesis of haphazard ministry. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who, as you know, ministered at New Park Street Chapel for 38 years, uh, after being pastor there for two years, he, he wrote his own catechism based on two others, Westminster and the Baptist Catechism, and he, he, he then introduced it to his church. And in his introduction to, to the catechism, he wrote this. This is just typical Spurgeon. I am persuaded that the use of a good catechism in our families will be a great safeguard against the increasing errors of the times. And therefore, I have compiled this little manual from the Westminster Assemblies and the Baptist Catechisms for the use of my own church and congregation. Those who use it in their families or classes... Now, what classes? He's talking about adult Sunday school. Now, I don't want to get into a methodology discussion today. That's a whole other big discussion. Just interesting there. That may be something we could re-look at. Adult Sunday school. Those who use it in their families and classes must labor to explain the sense. But the words should be carefully learned by heart, for they will be understood better as years pass. I want to tell you, that is one of the greatest statements on Christian education I have ever read. That is the epitome of pastoral wisdom. They will be understood better as the years pass. David said in Psalm 119, Your word have I hidden in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I've hidden your word in my heart. It's buried in there deep in my heart and in my mind so that when I'm living my life later and temptation strikes me, that which I've buried in my heart, which my parents buried in my heart, will come out and I will not sin against you. Full comprehension full comprehension of theological truth does not have to precede memorization of theological truth. No, it does not. Spurgeon goes on to say, May the Lord bless my dear friends and their families forevermore is the prayer of their loving pastor. And then he quotes 2 Timothy 2, Study, show yourself approved. Okay, so why do catechisms work? Many answers to that question, but let me just offer a few. Firstly, catechisms start the right discussions. A catechism is not a bare bare question and answer sheet. Spurgeon, in fact, there he says, he said, um, those who use it must labor to explain the sense. Every question in the catechism elicits the right discussion. I want to illustrate that uh, to you from a a little example from my own family. About three years ago, uh, at the time my children were 10, 8, and 7 years old, um, I taught my kids a a large chunk of an old Presbyterian catechism called the New Catechism. And uh, question 48 of the New Catechism says this... (coughs) How did Christ fulfill the covenant of grace? The answer, of course, Christ obeyed the whole law for his people and then suffered the punishment due for their sins. Now, in that little Q&A, there is a whole world of theology. There's redemptive history. 
the covenants of Scripture. There's the active and passive obedience of Christ, both. And I remember having a wonderful discussion at home with the kids about the wonders of our salvation and what Christ has done for us. That it's not only the passive obedience of Christ that Jesus died for our sins, which yes, he did. He suffered the punishment due for our sins. But there's a whole other part of of the life of Jesus that also is counted in our behalf. It's not just that we're forgiven and now we're back up to sort of ground zero with God. Okay, you're forgiven, but you need now... No. 33 years of an obedient life and every good thing that he did, things that we haven't done at school, with mom and dad, with your friends on the sports field, all the good things that Jesus would have done in those situations is credited to our account. It's given to us as if we did it. The active obedience of Christ. So that when God looks out of heaven and he sees you, because you're in Christ, he says... This is my beloved son, Luke, my son, in whom I'm well pleased. He's actually thrilled with you because of the act of obedience of Christ. So can you see, one little catechism question brings out the right discussions. So in the actual warmth of family life, sitting around the table after dinner and kicking the dog and and a glass of wine and a vintage light and, a, and you know, kids getting distracted and brother punching his sister. Within the warmth of family life, Bible reading and catechisms, they provide a daily space in which dad can sit with his kids and give them his full attention And kids will ask questions, and they will raise objections, and you'll be amazed the kind of questions the children ask. Theologically deep questions. This whole thing leads a family into a a nightly discipleship space. And although I'm trying desperately to avoid the methodology discussion today, because it's another, that's kind of next step. The one thing I do want to say on methodologies that I think we could do a lot better as churches is to empower our parents to conduct good family devotions with their children at home. And we can give them great tools. And I think a good family devotion must include, along with prayer, systematic Bible reading, and the use of a catechism. Uh, J.I. Packer says this, and evangel- as evangelical Christian educators, we see catechesis as integral to the all-age Christian nurture that every congregation should be practicing. Together, we mourn its eclipse, perceiving this as the deepest root of the immaturity that is so widespread in evangelical circles. And we unite in seeking the recognition, restoration, and indeed enhancement of it as a basic discipline of the Christian life. You know, one of the main objections to the use of of, of catechisms, if we can address this, is that catechesis is a a form of indoctrination. You know, that that, that sort of Catholic thing. But anybody that raises that objection, that catechisms are indoctrinating people, I think they're profoundly naive, although it may come from a, a sort of pure enough motive that the objection... They're completely naive about how much our children and the new converts that are coming into our churches and our existing members are being catechized by the culture that we live in. 
We keep a, a pretty strict control on the media content of our home. We don't have TV. We've never had TV. Since the day Danielle and I got married, we've never had TV. Our children don't know what it is to have TV in our house. Now, we've got one of the biggest TVs known to mankind, but it's got a DVD player, and that's it. We control what content comes into the house. We, we, we're very tight with like, um, YouTube and all that stuff, so social media. We hardly listen to public radio, maybe a little bit in the, in the, in the car on the road to school. But we, we're pretty tight on it. But I'm amazed when we go to like a, a public place, like a Tanga Junction or a school fair or something where there's contemporary music playing over the loudspeakers. And I watch my kids and they sing along with the music. And I, and I, I ask myself, how do they know the words? Where do they learn that? Now, I'm not, I'm not being alarmist and I'm not being a fundamentalist. We don't homeschool, and I know some of you homeschool, but just, we, our kids are at like a public school. So let that just illustrate you. We're not like the fundamental, you know, separate from culture. No, we know you can't separate from the culture. But let me say this. If I, as a father who loves my children, if I am concerned... When my children are singing certain lyrics of certain songs that are ungodly, if I'm concerned of the negative impact of sexualized lyrics or, or foul language in music or violent rap music, if I am concerned by the, the, the effect of that stuff going into their heads and sealing itself in the memories of my children, even though they don't really understand what they're singing, they're just singing along with it. If I'm concerned about that, then why on earth when we have the great doctrines of the Bible, when I want to get my kids to memorize the great doctrines of the Bible, am I told that that's lifeless brainwashing? That, that we have to be scared of the negative side, but it has no positive power when you do it on the positive side. Well, Lord, I can say, as, me, as for me and my house, I reject that. <clears throat> but passionately. To a large extent, language frames our world. Language frames the world we live in. And it, 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 it frames our experience of the world. Teaching children and adults, for that matter, a vocabulary with which to talk about God and themselves and the world is an extremely important thing. By the time our children reach their teenage years, ideally, I think our children must have the ability to express in words what they believe. They should be able to express in words what the Bible teaches about the person and being of God. They should be able to express verbally what they believe about Scripture, about its nature and its function, about the dignity of man as we were created. They should be able to express in words what sin is and what sin has done, the miserable state into which man has fallen and in which we find ourselves. They must be able to express in their own vocabulary, their own words, what sin is, what repentance from sin is. Words about Christ and salvation. Words about God's covenant dealings through history. Words about the meaning of history itself. Words about the church and the sacraments. Words about judgment and hell and heaven. You know, we can't get these truths into their hearts, but God expects us to get it into their minds and into their mouths. Don't let this depart from your mouth. And for good reason, listen to 
the reference in your notes is wrong. This is actually Tim Keller who said this. Such instruction, Princeton theologian Archibald Alexander said, is like firewood in a fireplace. Without the fire, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, firewood will not itself produce a warming flame. But without the fuel, there can be no fire either. And that is what catechetical instruction is. I told you that story as I started today. My son. Where, where did my son's comment come from about that little video when I said, oh, this video is corrupt? And, and out of his mouth popped, uh, in every part of its being. Where, where did that vocabulary come from? Well, I said to you, two to three years ago, I, I taught my kids a large chunk of that Presbyterian catechism. And I've reproduced questions 37 to 39 in your manual. And these were part of what we learned. This is the catechism, the little section on sin. Question 37. What effect did the sin of Adam have on all people? Answer, we are all born guilty and sinful. Well, you think of all the theology in that. We're not just born sinful. We're born guilty already in Adam. We are guilty before we personally sin. So much there. Question 38. How sinful are you by nature, Luke? And night after night, Luke would go, I am corrupt in every part of my being. <laughs> Question 39. What is the sinful nature that we inherit from Adam called? Answer, original sin. And then two to three years later, not having reviewed it in the interim, my nine-year-old Luke is looking over my shoulder. I say a video is corrupt and out of his mouth pops in every part of its being. And I am not one bit ashamed that I have somehow lifelessly brainwashed him. My job is to teach him and to pray for him. And it will be the Holy Spirit that brings to life the truth that I have hidden in his heart. The Holy Spirit will set alight the kindling that I have laid. Now listen to me, that can be done with adults as well. Adults who, who perhaps didn't get this as children, as I didn't. If we're honest, some, maybe many of the people in our church have never got this. It's, it's not too late. We can do it. We all know what the chief end of man is. I asked you, you all knew the answer. And I mean, wouldn't you agree? That's an amazing piece of theology to have a, have a Bible study or to, to discuss with a child. But how many of us know what the other 106 questions are? Because where does that come from? That's the first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And there are 106 other questions in the Westminster Shorter Catechism that are equally as powerful, as heart-delighting, as God-glorifying, and as didactically powerful as question one is. Just look at question number two. I think I've reproduced that in your manual. So the, end, the chief end of man is, is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Question two, what rule has God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him? And the answer, the Word of God contained in the Old, uh, in, in the Scriptures, contained in the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. It is the Scriptures that teach us how to enjoy and glorify God. Imagine a Bible study on that. So anybody that says catechisms are dry have never read a catechism. Okay, some 
a, a few concluding statements, and then if I can be as cheeky as to maybe suggest some potential ways forward. I've said to you that the Great Commission, in, in that, Jesus commands us to make disciples. And that that is done by teaching people all the things that I've commanded you. Now that raises certain questions. And I've raised with you basically two questions today that the Great Commission itself raises. And, and I don't think... Perhaps it, it, it may be so that some people, pastors, churches, in, in our broader charismatic non-denominational circles, I, I think maybe we, we could have done a better job at answering these two questions. The, the first question, how? If, if we are commanded to, to make disciples by teaching, how do we decide and, and communicate what we believe that Doctrine, that body of doctrine constitutes. What, what is it that establishes people as disciples? What do we teach? And, and I've said to you that historically, the, the Protestants of the time of the Reformation have answered that question in a far more comprehensive way than we have in our circles. They weren't afraid to make big calls on contentious issues and put them on paper. You know, you just have to, to read through some of these, these fantastic old confessions of faith. Even the 39 articles of the Church of England, that's an incredible statement of faith. You, you read through some of these of the Westminster Confession. I mean, that is an amazing statement. You don't agree with everything in it, of course not, but it's amazing. It will inspire you to new heights of the, the theological expression of what you believe. Let's read um, Charles Donahue. He wrote a, a good book called Making Kingdom Disciples. So Donahue says this, The basic process of making disciples must include an understanding of the system of truth taught in the Bible. We want each believer to understand from the very beginning that what we believe is based on what the Bible says. And while the Bible is not a systematic textbook, no, yet it does give us truths that form a system of truth that does not contradict itself but hangs together as one whole message. That understanding is essential to know what we believe and why and is key to being able to articulate those beliefs when given the opportunity. Okay, so that's the first question raised by the Great Commission. What constitutes the faith? The faith. Second question, how do we then teach this body of doctrine to our children, to our new converts, and to those existing members who, if we're honest, still need it? And as we look into church history, I've suggested to you that certainly it's not the only tool, but by far the most commonly used tool throughout the Protestant era has been a catechism. Because it is relational. It brings people together. It is consistent in its theology. It engages the learner verbally. It brings out the relation between the doctrines. Because a catechism has a train of thought as you proceed. 
It engages the memory. It teaches Christians a Christian vocabulary. And it elicits conversations between the parent and the child, between the teacher and the student, between the pastor and the flock. That great old um, Anglican theologian T.F. Torrance, if you've ever read anything about Torrance, one of the most incredibly deep thinkers, he wrote this, and I'm, and I'm coming to a, a close here. This is one of the most profound pieces of writing you will ever read. Speaking of catechisms, he says this. It is an important step in any branch of scientific research to learn to ask the right questions. Christianity does not set out to answer man's questions. If it did, it would only give him what he already desires to know and has secretly determined how he will know it. Christianity is above all the question that the truth puts to man at every point in his life. Now concentrate. So that it teaches him to ask the right, the true questions about himself and to form on his lips the questions which the truth by its own nature puts to him to ask of the truth itself so that it may disclose or reveal itself to him. Now the catechism is designed to do just this. And it is therefore an invaluable method in instructing the young learner. For it not only trains him to ask the right questions, but it trains him to allow himself to be questioned by the truth. And so to have questions put into his mouth, which he could not think up on his own. And which therefore call into question his own preconceptions. In other words, it is an event of real impartation of truth. That is profound. Okay, so I don't think we've answered these two questions well in, in, in our neck of the woods. What is that faith and how do we teach it systematically to every age group population within our church? Lay this base of theological knowledge. Now, couple of suggestions, and these obviously won't be a surprise, but let me just wrap it up. First, I, I propose that we could perhaps benefit from drafting more comprehensive statements of faith for our churches. Statements which the elders are happy, illustrate, reflect, communicate that whole counsel of God, that body of Christian doctrine, which is the truth which establishes Christians. Um, Parrott and Kang, uh, so this is Gary Parrott, the guy that wrote the book with, with J.I. Packer. He wrote another book with a guy called Steve Kang. They're professors together somewhere in Canada, I think. Um, they wrote this book, Teaching the Faith, Forming the Faithful. And in that they say this, it is critical to have prospective members study the church's statement of faith. It is surprising that some churches have no such statement. This may be part of a trending toward the downplaying of propositional belief systems. But this seems a tragic mistake. Such a statement is both constructive and protective. It is constructive in the sense that it is a positive teaching tool available for all to see, study, and consider. 
It is protective or preservative in that it provides a basis for evaluating potential threats in the form of heresy or less severe forms of deviant teaching. Part of the membership covenant should involve affirmation of the teachings of the church. Without a statement of those beliefs, any such affirmation will obviously prove difficult. All right, so that's my, my first tentative suggestion. And then secondly, I believe that we do need a, a systematic, consistent methodology of how to teach this statement once we have it to our children, to our new converts, and to many of our existing members who may need it. And... Uh, my suggestion is that, that, that perhaps a first step towards a holistic theological education program in our churches could be the development or adoption of a catechism, both an adult's and a children's version. And I think the New City Catechism, if any of you went onto the website and had a look at it, it's a fantastic resource. We may want to add a few questions about charismatic baptism of the Spirit or, or a credo, believer's baptism. But... I'm busy going through that with my kids at the moment. We've been doing it for the last month or so, and we're on question seven already, and having a lot of fun doing it. Um, actually, a great little resource, if you go onto the New City Catechism website, for each question on the adult version, um, there's, a, there's a short three or four minute video by some eminent theologian. Kevin DeYoung does the one, John Piper does the other one, D.A. Carson does another one, etc. It's the most amazing little resource that they've put together. Go and have a look at it. Okay, finally, let me, let me say this. If you do reject these two suggestions of mine, the statement of faith and the, and the catechism thing, at least what I've said to you today, at least let it do this. Let it get you asking those two questions. Just asking them in a new and a fresh way for your church. What is it that we believe? And how do we strategically, methodologically teach this to every person in our church? I think those are two great question. So if someone gets saved in your church, what do you do with them? You know, someone, if we see revival and we cry out to God for revival, if we see revival, multitudes of both men and women will be added to the church. But what are we going to do with them? What are we going to teach them? If I can be honest with you, I don't think we've done a very good job of that. Yes, we will you know, get them onto our foundations class. I'll get connected, whatever you call your foundations class, over a weekend. Yes. Yes, we will teach them about, you know, having a quiet time and Bible reading and prayer. Yes, we will, you know, encourage them to join a, a home group and come to Sunday and start listening to preaching. Yes, we'll lay our hands on them so they can receive the baptism of the Spirit. If that's something you're into, we'll do it. We will prophesy over them. Yes, we, I'm not saying that we stop doing any of those things. Those are all great. But regarding the most fundamental task of disciple-making, teaching them the great doctrines of the Bible, teaching them all that I've commanded you, when God adds multitudes of both men and women and their children to our churches, what are we going to teach them and how? Please just ask those questions in a fresh and a new way. I want to close with the words of Pekka. What might Paul think of the state of affairs in too many of our churches today, with pastors who do not regard teaching as a central feature of their ministries, 
and with other church leaders who are largely ignorant of the faith that they have been charged to pass on to others. May God grant it. Uh, May God grant to those of us in such leadership roles a spirit of repentance to take up a serious ministry of teaching once again. Returning to a a vision of rigorous catechesis will go a long way towards such a course correction. Thank you for your patience and time with me. Patience with me. Let's get into the 